0: While at Franciscan University of Steubenville, uh, during my first year, uh, while you know enrolled in school, uh, we had a lecture given by a professor from St. Louis University named Eleanor Stump. Uh, and she came and she spoke on Aquinas on the nature of love. And I went in there, kind of toddled in, somewhat expectant, but uh, kind of blithely unaware of what lay in store. And here she went ahead and described love with a kind of clarity and precision, with a depth, a profundity, that I had never heard enunciated before. And she gave expression to things that I had hoped to know or hoped to express, but never had the vocabulary or grammar to adequately give vent to. And in so doing, uh, she introduced me to Aquinas and to the way in which St. Thomas loved the Lord, uh, that laid claim on my life in a way that has come to now. So, <laughs> all my eggs being in that basket. So... I, uh, I believe firmly, I believe passionately, that to think well about love effectuates in loving well. That to think well about the Lord and about neighbor, to think well about life, emboldens, empowers, heals, elevates in such a manner that we are thereby better equipped for the task of life. So this is what lies in store. I'm going to give a kind of basic description of the difference and interconnection among loves, and in this, we'll take St. Thomas's exposition as our guide. It's classic to describe the difference and interconnection among loves. Love, which is one, we know, comes in various and interrelated expressions. I think the language with which we are most familiar is the language taken from the Greek. So we've heard of philia, Platonic love. We've heard of Eros or erotic love. We'd heard of Agape or divine love. St. Thomas has his own distinct terminology. Writing in Latin, he speaks of amor, which should be familiar to us who know romance languages, then of dilectio, then of amicitia, and of caritas. What we'll do is consider St. Thomas's exposition and terminology, and we'll do so with kind of requisite anthropological antecedents. So we'll try to map out what is in the heart of man, and then how love corresponds to each dimension, and then we'll crown each discussion with a description of friendship, trying to link each dimension of love back to its most practical and urgent application. So uh, we'll do first amor, which is like sense-desiring, and then delectio, which is intellectual-desiring, and then caritas, which is beyond human-desiring. So first, Amor. A word about the human person. Aristotle defines man as a rational animal. That is to say, we are the type of animal which reasons, which is to say that we have an animal nature. So there are things that we share in common with the beasts. So in Aristotle's classic work, the De Anima, he works up from a basic understanding of what it means to live to a full and most adequate expression of what it means to be human. And in so doing, he kind of observes what sets plants apart from rocks and what sets animals apart from plants and ultimately what sets man apart from animals. And he builds up this sense of there is a soul, uh, in, in, in Latin anima, which animates a living thing, which makes it to be alive, and from which issue these powers through which the particular being at hand acts. And we can identify those powers by their acts and reason back to their existence. So we see in plants, for instance, the powers of reproduction, of growth, and of nutrition. And we can see in animals, he says, the powers of movement, of sense cognition and sense appetite. And then in man, we see the powers uh, of intellect. And he wouldn't say of will. That awaits uh, a later expression in the tradition, but of a kind of intellectual appetition. And it's from this Basic understanding that we build up an understanding of the natural law, namely that there are inclinations towards certain goods that just come with certain natures. So, because of what a thing is, it is inclined to certain things that are good for it. And in the classic exposition that St. Thomas gives in the Prima Secunda of the Summa Theologiae, question 94, He describes these basic inclinations at work in man, those that are common to all substances, namely the inclination to the preservation of one's existence, those common to animals, namely the inclination to procreation and education of children, and those common to rational animals. And he lists here um, to live in society, to know the truth about God, to avoid offending those with whom we live, which I find very charming, and to shun ignorance. Okay, So, there are powers of the soul whereby we interface with this multiform reality for the upbuilding of our lives and for the attainment of goods necessary for flourishing the basic point that we're making here is that we are this type of thing and there are goods of these sorts out here and we need to interface fruitfully with these goods in order to build up our nature okay and sense appetite is is a basic component of this movement Sense appetite. So here, let's speak of love in the sense of sense-desiring. We refer to this in the Thomistic tradition as a passion, okay? A passion, taken from the verb for to suffer, because it's something that one suffers in his or her person, which is to say that it's something that moves you. It's something that changes you, principally in the body, but it also has a kind of spiritual resonance. So it moves us as a body-soul composite, St. Thomas describes the passions at length in the beginning of the Prima Secundae, and he lists 11, 11 basic responses to sense stimuli. He lists love, desire, and delectation or pleasure, and then he lists hatred, aversion, and sorrow, and then he lists certain passions that are more complex responses when that good with which we are interfacing is, is difficult or arduous, and so he'll list, list hope, and daring, fear, despair, and anger. Now, in each of these instances, you have something out there impinging upon us and causing within us a kind of basic response, okay? St. Thomas says that a passion of the sensitive appetite, which by, by its impulse extends the soul with a kind of violence towards its object, okay? So in the case of love... What is it that we are describing? What is the kind of passionate response? We begin with what is it that is out there, okay? So love is with respect to a good, okay? Good, uh, says Aristotle, is what, what all desire. So we call those things good, which somehow correspond with our nature, which somehow represent a boon for us, or somehow represent something that, if assimilated, will bring us to perfection. And love is a kind of recognition that this thing out here is fitting. I enjoy with respect to what a kind of complacency is the word that he uses here. Not complacency in the sense of like, I'm just kind of sitting on my duff, laying recumbent on a dais while someone feeds me seedless fruits. Um, but complacency in the sense of like complacencia. It's a, it's a great pleasant, like pleasantness, okay? Uh, so we are made to recognize what corresponds to our nature and before something which I recognize as such, I love. I love. St. Thomas will go on to say that if the thing is absent, I desire it, which is a movement towards the thing loved. But if it is present, then I take delight in it. Right? So love undergirds or is the kind of logic at work in desire and in pleasure or enjoyment or delight. Now, with that, let's let's bring this notion back to friendship. Amor, in the sense is a kind of friendship. Here we're using friendship analogically in a kind of low-grade sense. So amor is a kind of friendship with regard to oneself. It is a kind of friendship with regard to oneself. Uh, this is inchoate. This is kind of intuitive. But we can recognize how this is true. Nature is a principle both of identity and of unfolding. We are the type of thing that is made on the way and not at the end. And so we have this kind of inbuilt principle at work in our lives, in our bodily lives, so that we can recognize what is good for us, move towards it, assimilate it, and thereby be perfected. Good, we said, what, what all desire, which represents a perfection, acts for us as a kind of final cause. It orders the movements of our appetite. All right? So we are inclined to those things which build us up. We have a kind of foundational willing of our own good at work in our nature. That's all I mean by friendship in this case. We will our own good. We always and everywhere will our own good. And even in sinning, one is choosing the good as apprehended in a certain sense. So we cannot defect from this in a thoroughgoing way. Right? We can think of examples, right? Sociopathic or you know psychopathic examples. But nature is what obtains always and for the most part. And so it is true of human nature that we have this kind of movement towards what is good for us, which always represents a love of ourselves. So that's first, Amor. Now, let's move up the scale of being, Dilexia. We refer to this as a kind of intellectual desiring or a spiritual desiring. When St. Thomas talks about the passions, he introduces considerations proper to the more spiritual or immaterial, Uh, So he doesn't mean to separate body and soul, right? We are one thing, a body-soul composite, uh, an embodied soul or an ensouled body. We are not two things somehow like interfacing awkwardly at the pineal gland, as Descartes would have us think, right? We are one thing. And so there are always going to be a spiritual dimensions or a spiritual resonance to what begins in the body. And this is tangentially, the whole point of the theology of the body. This is what St. John Paul II means by the nuptial meaning of the body. Okay, So that the willing of the good of the beloved, right, the offering of oneself as a gift, has bodily dimensions, and that our bodies are meant to be transparent to God's intention sown into our hearts, which is actually at the very heart of the world, which is to say at the heart of God. So our bodies give rise in this body-soul composite, to spiritual dimensions. Or I should just say that there are spiritual dimensions to bodily loving. So, an anthropological note. Flourishing, human flourishing, is particularly bound up or peculiarly bound up with the highest activity of highest powers. And this sounds a bit abstract at first blush, but let's make it more concrete, okay? Why would we deem someone a successful human being, okay? Okay. Why would we deem somebody a successful human being? Let's say that uh, a, a particular individual were an excellent basketball player. Okay, let's say that they just let's say they were seven foot one. Let's say that they had excellent footwork. They were like a stretch five, had a decent outside game. Okay, and also had handles. It's incredible, right? You see him on both sides of the court, chase down blocks, just shaking people up on the offensive end. You're like, wow, this is. This is arresting. This is astonishing. This is beautiful. But let's say that that person were dissolute. Let's say that that person made dubious moral choices on a daily basis. Let's say that they were constantly embroiled in controversy. Let's say that they were constantly being suspended or showing up to games hungover, or they weren't able to perform at peak performance because they were sick and didn't take care of their body. We consider them kind of tragic, right? So on the one hand, they show certain excellences, but we recognize that what is most peculiarly human is absent. And as a result of which, they are more so an object of pity than of esteem. We feel that the talent has been wasted on them. So what does it mean to flourish as a human being? The highest activity of highest powers. What is distinctive about us as men and women? What sets us apart from the beasts? We have minds with which to know and we have hearts with which to love. We have an intellect and we have a will. These are spiritual powers which, though seated in corporeal organs, right, we use our minds, right, we use our brains, they transcend them, and as a result of which, they have a horizon which exceeds this present evil age, which goes beyond it. And so, to flourish as a human being is to think well and to love well, and to have those lower things incorporated in a great life. So, for instance, New Yorkers love Derek Jeter, but they don't love Alex Rodriguez as much. You know, why? Because Derek Jeter, by all accounts, is a prince of a man, whereas Alex Rodriguez was always finding himself in the tabloids. So they esteem him, while it might be the case that Alex Rodriguez was a better baseball player, they esteem Derek Jeter more, and uh, we can trust New York Yankees fans, at least on this point. Okay. So we are rational animals, and here I emphasize rational. What is specific to us, what sets us apart from the rest of material creation, the way, the way by which we crown material creation is as reasoning. So now let's delve into love as something reasonable, rational. We see two dimensions in love, benevolence and beneficence. This is how St. Thomas, uh, how he carves up his treatise on charity. Benevolence, benevolere, to will the good, and then beneficence, to do the good, fatere, to make, to fashion, all right, to perform the good. So there's an interior and an exterior dimension to love. It is not merely a matter of good wishing. And I submit to you that good wishing without good doing is not good wishing. And that's not to say that we are justified by works, but it is to say that we are justified by faith, breathing forth love, and that a faith is living and effective when it is manifest indeed. Okay? So, love takes this shape, good willing and good doing, interior and exterior dimensions. And in love, in its highest expression, I will the good of another as somehow worthy, noble, excellent, and beautiful. Those are meant to be somewhat synonymous, but they give you different shades of one concept. So I don't just love the person as useful, because in loving them as useful, I'm actually loving myself. So when I go to uh, checkout, I go down a floor, I go to the little concessionaire there, and I buy myself a clip bar with, like, cashew nut butter because I want to, like, have a little bit of food, you know, allay my appetite, or whatever. You get where I'm going. Um, I, I tender her currency, right? She gives me my product and a receipt so that I can include it on my expense report, right? <laughs> but I love her as as useful to me, as provisioning me a good. And in so doing, I am loving myself, right? I love her for me. It terminates in me. So, too, when I love someone because they are pleasant. Okay? We can love people who are pleasant to us for a variety of reasons. Say you have two really good friends, both of whom are excellent spike ball players. You're always out on the quad playing spike ball in that immaculate grass, which is so well maintained. Uh, But you find yourself utterly at a loss for a fourth, and you see a lonely spike ball player who's always practicing tweeners, you know? And you're like, that guy could be really good. Um, I have real, really no use for him apart from his spike ball ability, so I will court him for this purpose. <laughs> and then you do, and you attract him as a fourth, and you delight. And then at the end of every spike ball game, you look at your two friends and you say, let's, let's like go you know, have a beer or something like that. Let's go enjoy each other's company. And then you kind of look at the other, the fourth, and you say, "Like, why are you still here? Okay. <laughs> you know, during the time when you are playing spike ball together, you're not loving him for him. You're actually loving yourself because you want a full, uh, a delightful spikeball game, like replete with all the available talent. But you're not delighting in him. You're not loving him. So in love, in its highest expression, I am, I am willing the good of another as somehow worthy, noble, excellent, and beautiful. I'm loving him for himself. The word in Latin is honestum. It's a kind of honest good. The word in Greek is kalon kagathos, which means like the noble, beautiful good, okay, which is awesome, which comes from, like the kalon comes from kaleo, which means to call. The person represents a beckoning, an invitation, a welcome into a deeper, richer, spiritual world. The way that St. Thomas describes this is he, he breaks out two dimensions of loving. He refers to them as love of concupiscence and love of friendship. Uh, at the outset, I should say, these are not different loves. These are two dynamics at work in all loving. So we are not meant to divide them and to despise love of concupiscence because it sounds like something associated with original sin and to love love of friendship because it's friendship, okay? No, these are two dimensions present in every act of love. What is it that we're talking about here? Love of concupiscence is that dynamic whereby we regard the good. So um, an example that St. Thomas uses is bread or wine. So, daily, daily fare. I have love of concupiscence towards the food and drink because I have a certain esteem or regard for the good. Love of friendship, by, by comparison or by contrast, regards the other unto whom the good is willed. So, in the case of bread and wine, if I'm eating it, right, I have love of concupiscence with regard to the food and drink and love of friendship with respect to myself. Love of friendship terminates in a subject... Love of concupiscence regards an object. Now, this is a basic description, and here I want to dispel some misconceptions regarding this notion of spiritual love. There is a false characterization that you hear bandied about, namely that love of concupiscence is selfish love, and love of friendship is altruistic love, and we should love altruistically and not selfishly. I want to break us out of this dichotomy. Love is about willing the good of the other as my own good. Love is about willing the good of the other as my own good. Think about it this way, okay? If we love somebody altruistically, but it's something that discontents us, think about being on the receiving end of that love. Do you want to be loved because you are delightful? Or do you want to be loved because you are a charity case? Do you want to be able to see in the other's eyes that they are stealing every nerve when you respond to their queries? That you grate on all of their sensibilities, but they are there because they're committed? No, not in the least. That's a fate worse than death. I'd rather be alone, okay? So, we're not loving It's not for them over and against myself, but nor is it for me so as to instrumentalize them. Because if you get the impression that another person is loving you just for what you can supply for them, that's very degrading. We've all had this experience. So you've picked up the phone, and you've made to call a friend from whom you are about to ask a favor. And then you realize that the last time you called this friend was to ask a favor, and that you haven't called them in the intervening period. And then you are embarrassed, and then you close the phone, right? So we recognize that it is not good to instrumentalize others, right? It's not for me so as to instrumentalize them, but nor is it for them in a way that, like, does not take account of my own humanity. And this is where we get at that revelation that is oft quoted from Aristotle, namely that the friend is another self. The friend is another self, not as an egotistical extension of me, but in the sense that I bleed into him and he bleeds into me. And no longer do we say mine and thine, we say ours. And in so saying, we experience a good which would otherwise be inaccessible or inaccessible to us. We experience a richer reality. We drink more deeply from the font of life precisely because we proceed together, hand in hand. Okay, so the basic way in which St. Thomas describes this is that we recognize in another a kind of similitude. We recognize one like unto ourselves, possessed of a common nature, perhaps possessed of similar interests, perhaps ordered to a similar destiny, bound up in a similar work. And in that recognition of similitude, I recognize one like unto myself. I see them as pertaining to a common nature ordered to a transcendent common good. One that goes beyond the mere particular, that forms the basis of a real union. I think with other people. I don't know about you, but I do. I kind of had muddled thoughts about life, and I'm like, weird. Life is crazy. And then I go, and I make meditation, right? I I spend time before the Blessed Sacrament, and those muddled thoughts kind of proceed muddledly. That's an adverb, right? (laughs) And then, by that grace, somehow mysteriously, I then go and talk to my friends, and we tease things out. And by having honest friends who are not satisfied with half measures or half answers, you come to discover what it is that you really think or ought to think or now think as a fruit of common discovery. To be trained together on goods that are not diminished by our common sharing. We tend to think of common goods the way that you would think of like like a jar of candy. It's common inasmuch as everyone has access to it, but when it becomes becomes mine, I cash out. And it ceases to be common and becomes particular. Uh, There's one uh, Dominican friar, Father Aquinas Gilbo, who uses the example of a jar of candy or like a reservoir or a pension fund. We only think about them as common as a kind of aggregate of particular goods. But when I assimilate them, right, when I, when I take them to myself, they become particular. The types of goods that we're describing here with spiritual love are not like that. We're talking about truth. We're talking about virtue. We're talking about love in the mystical body, which is not diminished Because one cannot cash out, but rather that by corporately and commonly investing in it, it becomes more so mine, more so yours, ours, in a way in which ceases to speak of division. You can think about, um, if you've read the Divine Comedy, when you ascend the different celestial spheres in the Paradiso, you meet the saints at each level who are conspicuous for the demonstration of certain virtues in your life, but then you encounter them all again at the end, in the celestial rose, in the empyrean heaven, where together they sing of one thing as they gaze upon the incarnate word in the beatific vision. right? So they still have a kind of separate existence. They are not dissolved. They are not swallowed up into the one of God in such a way as to deprive them of their distinct and unique stories. Because each of us, in a certain way, fills up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ and tells dramatically, narratively, Something unique. But when, in the end, we come together, it will admit of no division nor of competition. We will no longer see the good of another as a threat to mine, but rather all will be all in all. It's like what St. Paul talks about, the inheritance of the saints in light. You will not begrudge the other saints for having merited more than you. Rather, their merits will enrich you and inform your praise of the Most High God. So that's what we're talking about here, okay? The others' perfection just is an integral feature of my own proper perfection because they are part of me. When you cease to acknowledge or cease to have a real division among persons, right? then the goods cease to be somehow intention. Mind you, this is a metaphysical before it is a psychological claim. This is just true. It's a matter of whether we acknowledge it. And to the extent that we acknowledge it, we will cease to begrudge others their talents. It's like the parable of the talents. To some is ascribed five, to some two, to some one. Each, when used, consented to and cooperated with, redounds to the glory of God. Right? It is only that talent which is hidden in a napkin and buried which ceases to bear fruit. Play your part and be small. (laughs) Aristotle puts emphasis on loving over being loved. And this is an essential point, okay? So I think that we find it very difficult to appreciate this point psychologically Um, Because we think of relationships in terms of what I put in and what I get out. And when we experience inequality in relationships, it grates on our nerves. You know, you think about the last few times that you've talked, who was the one that initiated it? It was me. I called. The last time you made plans, who was it that initiated it? It was me. I initiated those plans. The last time her birthday rolled around, I got her a gift. The last time my birthday around, she forgot. Well, she saw it on Facebook at the end of the day and then sent me a perfunctory text, you know. Because on account of the fact that we are wounded in our nature, we are like an infinite sea of neediness. We need constant affirmation. We need constant validation. And we seek that from our friends. And we find it very discomforting when they do not supply it after the manner of our desiring. But love is principally about loving before it is about being loved. And that needn't make you the kind of condescending person that, like, loves despite all obstacles. No because those people are grating, okay? Rather, it is to ask God for the grace to be forgetful of oneself, right? Lord, empty me of this neediness as you heal and elevate my nature. And in the end, please God, we will begin to act out of a kind of security in love rather than acting out of a doubt that we are lovable, okay? Because God loves us not because we are good, but because he's good. That's it. No antecedent merits, nothing foreseen on our account. God just is love. And where he found not love, he put it there, and thus you came to be. So, third and finally, caritas, or charity. Anthropological antecedent. We are created in grace with a supernatural destiny, teaches St. Thomas Aquinas. This need not be held in faith, but this is a speculative point of theology. He just thinks it's most fitting to imagine that Adam and Eve were created in grace, kitted out with everything that they needed, to affirm that they were from God and for God after the manner of God's creating. But Adam and Eve sinned, and so we lost grace, integral nature, those associated privileges, and resulted in a state or kind of found ourselves in a state deprived of those things. As St. Augustine says, uh, despoiled of grace and wounded in nature. Spoilatus et vulneratus. So, Because of the fact that we were created in grace and now deprived of it in such a way that we recognize the absence of what has gone before, we are ruined for life, okay? There is no returning to an imperfect beatitude, to a kind of contented natural happiness. We are always and everywhere ordered to a supernatural destiny. Now, there were some heated debates in the 20th century as to whether we could describe grace as somehow intrinsic or extrinsic to nature. What is important is that grace, we would want to affirm, is neither natural to us, nor is it unnatural to us, okay? It is supernatural to us, but we have the type of nature which recognizes it when it comes, which thrills at it when given, and which cottons to it when it begins to change our life. And without it, we are somehow ill-made, okay? So love on this imagining. Charity is the divinely infused virtue whereby we love God with his own love and for his sake and our neighbor with and for the same. I'll repeat that. Charity is the divinely infused virtue. Divinely. It comes from God alone. It is not something that we can acquire. All right? Despite our attempts to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, we will never make ourselves charitable. Divinely infused, from the Latin verb uh, infutere, which means to pour into, It is literally something that God pours into our capacious hearts. Virtue, virtue, which is to say that it is an operative perfection. It makes us good and to act well. Virtue is not about stasis. It's about dunamis, okay, which is to say dynamism, which is the root of the word dynamite. We are meant to be spontaneously and dynamically ordered towards the perfection and the good, okay? So it is a divinely infused virtue, stable and permanent quality or disposition of the soul whereby we act well under the influence of intellect and will, okay? Whereby we love God with his own love. We love God with his own love and for his sake and our neighbor with and for the same. So we do not have the means whereby to love God, whereby to love God adequately, which puts us in a place of terrible poverty, okay? Okay? The very thing for which we are made is something over which we do not have competence. Terrible, chastening, humbling. So if you've ever been tempted by the delusion of being a self-made man or woman, consult this fact. It will never end eternally well. Rather, we need God to give us his own love, whereby to love him with the same and for his sake, and our neighbor with the same and for God's sake. So with charity, primarily we are loving God as good in himself. It is a kind of discovery of God as beloved, as friend, before whom we are just captivated and beguiled. Secondarily, we love creatures as ordered to God. We see them as connected connected to God by so many tethers, by so many vectors, and we love them in such a way that we facilitate their return to God And we love with God's own love. So grace, when poured into the heart, takes on these distinct manifestations or shapes, right? So sacramental graces are these peculiar helps. The virtues are the types of graces which inhere in faculties and perfect certain actions, right? Certain operative potencies. The gifts of the Holy Spirit are certain graces which make us receptive to God's prompting, to the divine instinct or breath. Charity is often pointed to as the most significant of virtues, as the greatest of virtues, as the only one that abides. Charity is referred to as the substance of spiritual life, the substance of Christian perfection. You are a successful human being to the extent and degree that you are charitable. And you are a failed human being to the extent and the degree that you are not. In the end, we will be judged on love alone, says St. John of the Cross. In the evening of life, we will be judged on love alone. And the first letter to St. Paul to the Corinthians has a beautiful way of describing this. He says, faith will pass away and hope will pass away, but charity remains, love remains. Why? In heaven, in heaven, there will be no mediation. There will only be immediacy, right? So sacraments will pass away because they are signs of a sacred thing making man holy. We don't need signs where there are realities, where the whole spiritual atmosphere is of reality. So, too, we will, not, we will not need faith, because faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. You need no longer any assurance no, nor any hope when you behold, so faith gives way to vision. So, too, hope is a kind of trust that God will give eternal life because he is merciful and omnipotent, but you no longer need trust when you possess, because it is present as an immediate reality. Charity, though, does not pass away because there is nothing imperfect to charity. There is nothing provisional to charity. Charity just is the substance of Christian perfection. It is the very principle which orders our entry into the beatific vision. You will see to the degree and extent that you love. This is what St. Therese means when she says some will be buckets and some will be thimbles. All will be full, but of different capacities. Our capacity is determined by our love. Charity is also especially rich in this regard because it has a way of offering the whole person. Charity perfects the will, the heart. In St. Thomas' understanding, the will initiates the acts of all of the faculties. So if we think, it is in a certain sense because we have willed to. If we desire, it is because we have willed to. If we are moved in our passions, it is because we, are willed, we have willed to. So, charity, by informing the will, informs that faculty which is at the beginning of all of the movements of our soul. And so, it stands at the head, it stands at the headwaters of a current which rushes unto eternal life. St. Thomas refers to charity as the form of the virtues, the form of virtusum, because it offers to them their final and most perfect complexion. So, a, a concrete example. Like, you can be temperate for a number of reasons, okay? You can be temperate because, let's say you have, like, dietary restrictions. Let's say you're, like, uh, you're a vegetarian, okay? So you can't eat meat. Uh, So you have to be temperate in terms of intake because in order to supply your diet with sufficient protein, you have to be a bit choosy and smart. You're like, ah, yes, I will have beans. Um, (laughs) if If I can muster the courage, I will have tofu right? I find it spongy and slightly unpleasant, but if fried, it can be exciting, <laughs> right? And so you, you plan your day and you plan your diet accordingly. Um, so you have to be temperate because it's very difficult to be overindulgent unless you have, um, I don't know, like a bag of popcorn ready at hand with that. Never mind, I'll stop talking. Okay. So, um, so you can be temperate for such-like reasons, okay? You can also be temperate because you're dieting, right? So let's say you're getting married in seven months um, and you've done the very foolish thing of purchasing an aspiration dress, okay? You've purchased a dress that requires you to lose six pounds. Why you did that? I have no idea, okay? (laughs) But you did. You're like, this will finally be the opportunity to shed those last few. It's like, you're crazy and you're going to be uncomfortable on your wedding day, okay? So now you are being temperate for the purpose of dieting. But let's say... Um, that one of your friends was just diagnosed with a rare disease okay and you literally do not know how to help her you have no idea how to help her you show up you know you like any opportunity that you have you try to get her food other than the food offered in the cafeteria because the mere thought of it makes her sick right Um, you call her you check in you know you text but you feel wildly inadequate to the task and so you decide on Wednesdays and Fridays I am I'm gonna only have bread and water Um, up until 6 p.m., for love of her. That is temperance come to full issue because it is temperance done for love. St. Thomas says that all of the virtues have this ability or they have this potency to be fully actualized by charity, that our whole life can become a a love song to the Savior, that all of it can be drawn up in this movement wherein everything that rises must converge. It makes the virtues... To be virtues in the fullest sense. And so, charity is love come to perfection. A last point about friendship, and then we'll conclude. St. Thomas begins his treatise on charity in the Secunda Secunda, question 23, article 1, with this He says, Utrum caritas sit amicitia, whether charity is friendship. And he answers, Yes. Yes, it is. Charity is a kind of friendship because it puts us in loving relation to God and contextualizes our whole life in terms of that love. What is friendship? I have saved the definition until now. Aristotle describes it as mutual benevolence with a shared life. It is to will the good of the other, to have that reciprocated, and then to have a common life, communion or communicatio. Friendship, as a result, entails a kind of equality, and you can consult your experience to determine that equality is a necessary feature of friendship, or else it limps, lags, or fails. Aristotle, when speaking of the possibility of friendship between man and God, despairs that such equality can be established, because there is too great a distance. But St. Thomas says that by God's gift, by God's gift, it is possible. And in John 15 we read, I no longer call you slaves, but friends, for I have shared with you everything I have, From my father. Aristotle says that it is distinctive of friends that they share with each other their deepest secrets. And Christ has shared with us the deepest secrets of God. In the incarnation, he shows us just how much God loves us. God loves us in such a way that he has taken to himself a human nature. He has quit the calls of heaven. He has bowed down in divine condescension and suffered for love of us that we need not fear the prospect of a life without him for eternity. He took human flesh. He gives us his grace and divine life, and he ushers us into the life of heaven which begins now and is the basis of communion, an abiding communion. So, the heart has reasons, that reason knows not, and yet this is not to say that love is unreasonable or irrational. Rather, though not at all times nor explicitly deliberate, love has a logic at work in its unfolding. Inclined to goods that correspond to and transcend our nature, love is the energy that bears us on. And by virtuous formation, we can participate this movement more consciously and perfectly unto the praise of his glory. Thank you.